0: All right. so David is one of those characters who's very prominent. He looms large in the literary sphere. Uh, even among the secular world, a lot of people would know who King David is. And uh, in, terms, in terms of historicity, we have more recorded about King David than any other historical figure um, that's measuring life. We know more about the totality of King David's life ...than any other uh, ancient historical figure. Uh, And that even includes Jesus. So there is a lot said about David. And we know many Bible stories. We learn, of course, the story of David and Goliath... ...when we're younger, then we get a little bit older... ...and we also learn this other um, incident in his life. The one we're probably all thinking about... ...when it comes to spiritual warfare... ...is the sin with Bathsheba. But I actually want to focus on another incident in his life... Another moral failing of David that doesn't get talked about or studied nearly as much. And it's this incident that we're going to start out looking in 1 Samuel 21. And it's the story of after he's on the run from Saul. And he is going to be... uh, Well, first he goes and he has this incident where he's in front of Ahimelech the priest... And he lies to him and says he's on a mission, and he eats the consecrated bread. He eats the holy bread that he's not supposed to be eating. And this creates deep trouble for him. And we're going to see that the lies of David kind of compound. And it gets to the point where the more he lies, the more trouble he gets in. And the more, um, you know, the situation is going to worsen for him. And the more he's going to have to deal with down the road. And so... This is an incident which is really interesting because in Mark 2, Jesus even comments on this and says that uh, this incident with David and Ahimelech and eating the showbread is something that he shouldn't have done, but is the first in a long line of things that is going to get worse for David. So um, let's start in verse 8, and I'm going to be reading um, through here. uh, Verses 8 through 10 says, David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, who you killed in the valley of Elah, it is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So you have David here lying, not just to anyone, lying to a priest as if lying isn't bad enough. Um, and then after he eats the consecrated bread, he once again reiterates this lie. He says, I'm on a mission, and it's such an important mission that I wasn't able to grab you know, a weapon or anything. Do you have anything I could use? And Ahimelech says, yeah, actually, you know that sword that you killed Goliath with? Yeah, it's actually right over there if, if you want to grab that. And David's like, yeah, that sounds great. I'll take that Um, sword he was probably very familiar with. So he goes and gets it, and then he goes, where does it say he goes? He goes to a city um, called Gath. And what is significant about Gath? What do we know about Gath? It's one of five cities in the territory of Philistines, yes, Philistia. So this is really interesting and also indicates that David's not making very good decisions because he takes the sword of which he killed Goliath. And where was Goliath from? He was from Gath. And then he takes this very well-known sword and goes into the enemy territory with the sword, being himself a very well-known person for doing that very thing, executing Goliath. And this is almost a reversal of the story of David and Goliath, because in that story you have Goliath coming from Gath, standing at the doorstep of Israel and shouting, jeers, taunting, uh, you know, hurling things at them. And then David (coughs) musters up bravery, goes and defeats Goliath. What we're going to see is kind of the opposite, is that now he is going into the gap, and he's going there, but he's not doing it in bravery. He's doing it in fear. He's on the run, and it's almost this reversal to kind of show us that David is moving in the wrong direction. He's older now, but he's not going the right way. So, let's look, um, moving on from that, uh, we just read 8-10, through so this is verses 11-12, through it says, Now, so he's there now, he's in front of Achish, king of Gath, this Philistine city. says, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Because you remember that song, you remember the way that he gained his popularity Was that he won this great victory um, for Israel. And this whole reason he's on the run is because this uh, newfound fame and this popularity has incensed him or has incensed Saul against him. That's part of it. We'll talk a little bit more about what goes into that. But they have this song that they sing where they say, Yeah, sure, you know, Saul's killed thousands of people, but David at this point has killed tens of thousands of people. And that's something that he would have been known for. So this idea that he can just go into this enemy city and hang out here without, you know, with the sword that he did this thing is just kind of bewildering that he thinks he would get away with this. This has to be some sort of, I guess, um, arrogance on his part, or perhaps he thinks he's, we're gonna see, he seems to think he's more clever than he is, or he's too clever for his own good. Uh, Any thoughts on maybe like, (coughs) the <coughs> mindset of David or what he was thinking or th- anything that might have led him to this point?
1: It's kind okay. of interesting, even though he seems to be deceptive with the high priest uh, Jesus uses him as an example and uh, he's justified in having done that. <coughs>
0: Uh, to a certain extent, like, in, in what way would you say he's justified? He didn't
1: sin. That's what Jesus, at Jesus' point, that he didn't sin, even though he ate the
0: show bread. Are you referring to, yeah, the account in Mark? I'm sorry. Are you, you're talking about later on, when Jesus goes back to the account? Okay. No, I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. Um, but, like, in this specific instance, like, I'm trying to think of how to say it. So when, when David later writes Psalm 34, I think kind of, we kind of see the repentant heart of David is that he is apologizing for um, the fact that he denies God and does not act in the way that he should have, is, is kind, of, um, kind of referring to this incident here. I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry, saying, I'm kind of missing
1: your point. I'm just saying in view of the fact that he's deceptive here, uh, Jesus uses him as an example in his teaching that David was justified in eating the showbread.
0: Okay. Um, any other thoughts on the actions of David at this point?
2: Were, were you planning on going to those New Testament
0: passages later on? No, then? no, no. I, I was, was just referencing yeah. that as something <laughs> that does occur later on. Yeah. Well, let me just make a comment. In.
2: Three of the all of the synoptists record this event. Um, Matthew chapter twelve, Mark chapter two, and Luke chapter six, I believe, all record this event. And Jesus sets up an equivalency between David and the way he acted and himself with his disciples, the way that they acted when they went through the fields and plucked grain on the Sabbath. Yes. And this. Sort of the, the takeaway point is, and I think this is what Jay is alluding to, that because of the dire circumstances of the disciples being hungry, and David, both David and Christ, acting out of goodwill towards those that were with him, and being on a mission from God, the word that Jesus uses is guiltless, and he applies that word to himself, but by implication I think captures David in that too. Even though he says that what he did was against the law, he also ends up saying in the same way that David was guiltless in what he did and that the priests were guiltless when they went around performing their rituals on the Sabbath day, which was also illegal. These were things that God permitted or that God allowed and were, they were justified. And Jay used the word justified. Jesus used the word guiltless yeah. in regards to those things. So it, it's kind of showing that there's a greater... ...truth than just, okay, it's a, it's against the law or it's not against the law. God cares about <laughs> motives, I think, yes, is the bottom yes, line. this
0: is all this is all very true. Um, before we get off, that's a little tangential, but the main underlying theme is there. Is that there's more to this to understand, and that's kind of this idea of the spiritual battle. Is if you look at just one instance in David's life, you could say, Oh, well, he shouldn't have done this, or he lost at this specific moment. But when we go back and look at kind of what led up to this, which is what we're going to do... Um, we kind of see a bigger picture um, what might have put David at this point and what might have later on um, made Jesus in the points that he makes look at him uh, with understandability rather than, uh, you know, with judgment uh, is, is kind of the point that I was making there. So um, starting in 22, David left Gap and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So he's hiding out there in that cave. Like I said, a lot of people think that is the point in which he writes the 34th or the 34th Psalm. And some people believe that the words of that Psalm are directed to uh, the men in that cave. And what's interesting here is just a little shadow of Jesus. You have... A man who is a promised king. A man who should be ruling over everything. But he's only ruling over a few at this point. If he's not ruling over members of a royal court, it's those who are distressed, in debt, and discontented. And those are very similar to the followers of Jesus and the early following that he had. And the people he was able to attract and appeal to with his message. So that's just kind of interesting there. So we're going to go all the way back to 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to look at the scene in which David enters the biblical narrative. And this is a story we should all know well, is that you have Samuel coming to the house looking for the king that uh, God's going to indicate uh, who it is to be. And he's in the house of Jesse, and Jesse lines up all his sons. And he goes down the line, but God doesn't select any of them. And Samuel goes, well, that's that's interesting. Um, Do you have any other sons? And then Jesse goes, yeah, I do, actually. I have, I got this shepherd boy named David. He's the youngest, though. I mean, I didn't really think it would be him, but I can go get him if you want. Yeah, Samuel says, do that. So verse 12 of 1 Samuel 16 says, So he sent for him, and he brought him in, and he was glowing with health, and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And so from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramoth. So then we have not only the entrance of David on the scene, but the Spirit of the Lord working with David through David, being a part of David. And that's going to help him tremendously. As we're going to see, he's not going to have it easy. So here comes David. He's promised to be the king at this point. And he's very young at this time. Um, Some of the more uh, exaggerated estimates, I guess, put him around 10 years old. Um, He's probably around 10 to 15. Let's say 10 at the youngest, maybe 15 at the oldest. But very young, and he's not going to be the king until about 15 years later. So that's the totality of his life up to that point, is that he's going to have to wait for this promise to come to fruition. That's an aspect of David's spiritual battle that sometimes doesn't get talked about as much. But there's a tremendous amount of patience required by David as he waits to be placed. And even in this cave, these years later, he is still waiting. So we have David, and then we're going to um, skip ahead a little bit down to verse 17. This is later on when David, after the feeding Goliath, is now taking on several jobs. Not only is he still working for his father, Jesse, but he also has a side job. He plays the lyre um, for Saul, and we know that Saul is distressed by this, uh, this demon that's bothering him. It's making him depressed, it's making him erratic, but there's something that seems to be helping him, and it's music. And specifically, David uh, is playing this music that helps him. So uh, this is verse 17. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well, and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine man, and the Lord is with him. And Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Um, verse 20. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. So you have David, not quite a king yet, but hey, maybe he's getting closer, right? He's entering into the service. He does this uh, service for Saul, and Saul likes him, takes a shine to him, and he makes him one of his armor bearers. Which is an important job. So maybe David at this point is thinking, okay, I can kind of see how I'm moving up. I can kind of see God's plan aligning for me. And the story goes on. Um, Later we have, you know, the story of David and Goliath is the next chapter over. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, and I'm going to start in verses 17 uh, of, of chapter 17. It says, Now Jesse said to his son David, remember he is uh, going to take food to his brothers, that's the context here. Take this epaph of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So David kind of has this task here. It's a menial task. It's not the task that's befitting the king. He's running. He's going to give food to the actual soldiers, the people who are doing the real fighting, and that is his brothers. Um, so you have him, and he's going to go out there. And uh, a few verses down, starting in 28, it says... When Eliab, David's oldest brother, and remember he had a lot of brothers, so this is probably considerably older, he hears him speaking with the men, and he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came down here to watch the battle. 29, David's reply says, Now what have I done Can I even speak? So you have jealousy here. You have something that was probably planted in that house of Jesse's when he brings David in and he's the one selected out of all of the others. Kind of makes you think of another story in the Old Testament of someone who was chosen, someone who had these special visions and his family turned against him and despised him for it. I'm talking, of course, about Joseph. Uh, kind of interesting that you have this brother uh, relationship here But in our own lives in our spiritual battle our own relationships with people can sometimes mirror this we um, Sometimes consider ourselves. I think as someone who is raised in uh, You know a family that was in the church already I consider myself lucky that I had a family that supported me and loved me and taught me the gospel, but not everyone has that luxury. Not everyone has that privilege, that blessing. And I know there's many people, and uh, some of you might have your own stories, who found the gospel and found the good news, and their family was not happy for them, but treated them the way this brother is treating Jesse, and saying, you are just doing this because you are conceited. You want to prove that you're better than everyone, you think that this makes you better. You think that you have some special privilege that the others don't have. And I don't want anything to do with you. And that's really, really tough. And maybe even if it's not from our own family, we've had friends or people in our lives who we cared about. For one reason or another, the gospel and our mission in Christ came between us and that relationship was shattered. That's part of spiritual warfare, and that's not an easy one. <coughs> To let go of relationships for the cause of Christ. Um, we're going to go over. Next chapter. Um, 18. 7 through 8. And this is. Once again after. Uh, David and Goliath. After he slays the Philistine. And you have something that happens to David. And that is. Overnight sensation. He. He. Is known to everybody. This young boy, who just before this was running food to the army, is now the most popular uh, person in Israel. And this is when they come up with the song. Verse 7 says, As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul, who liked David up until this point, changes his tune. Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? So that that idea in Saul's head, already trying to figure out, if David is going to become greater than me, I cannot allow it. Saul's pride gets in the way, and he lets it consume him. And he directs that anger uh, unjustly towards David. And we all know kind of what happens next. And it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul, and he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So David is now in a very precarious situation, not only is he not liked by his boss, he's hated, and he's in danger. I've had some pretty tough jobs. I've been in what we might consider hostile work environments. I know some of you, if you've been in the job market long enough, you've known you know, situations, environments, that are less than what we would call sociable or friendly. I've never had it as bad where my boss is trying to kill me. I've never been at work and had a boss pull out a gun on me. But this is essentially what happens to David here. Saul wants to kill him. The person who he works for, who he serves, who he's supposed to be um, attending to, wants him dead. And now David has to be thinking, okay, what is going on here? When? When is this promise going to be fulfilled? I see things going so great, but it's like, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Now I have this to deal with. And so Saul just seems to be up and down, back and forth. And one day he's trying to kill David. And then he offers him his daughter's hand in marriage. This is 18 verse 17. I'm reading now. Saul says to David, here is my older daughter, Mira. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. I'll let the Philistines do that. So, David's head has to be spinning. Okay, this guy who's just trying to kill me now wants me to be his son-in-law. What's the deal here? We know that Saul, still having these evil motives, has this ulterior motive. Is that he says, okay, well I'll send David in the battle and then the Philistines will kill him. So he's already forgetting the power of having God on his side. David already killed the most powerful Philistine. He's thinking that he can dispose of David in this way. Uh, verse 19 of that same chapter, once again, Saul changes it up on him. So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Melola. So he pulls the rug out from him. He says, I'm actually not going to let you marry my daughter. At least not that one. Uh, chapter 19, starting from verse 11, one chapter over. So Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But okay, I'm getting hedged. Okay, so there's another um, story here in which, after he um, rescinds that invitation of marriage, he then says, "You can uh, marry my other daughter, Michael. And David says, I, "Okay, I guess I'll, I guess I'll marry her." Um, he seemed to like her well enough. So they get married instead, but there is a dowry that Saul requires. Does anyone remember what this dowry that Saul wants from David is? Yeah, it's Philistine foreskins, specifically 100 of them. And so David says, well, that's a weird request, but I'm having a weird week, so I guess I will go with it. (laughs) So he and his men go out, and they get not only 100, but 200, and they bring it back, so they double the order, And then it says that Saul was even more afraid of David at this point. Now he's even more scared of him. And it says that this is the point in which his hatred solidifies. And it says from that day forward, Saul was an enemy of David. There's nothing he can do at this point. Saul has made up his mind to hate David. Um, I've been going through this. Yeah, Uh, any comments or questions at this point? I was noticing back in
1: 17, mm-hmm. this, well, 18 is. You read these two verses and I just think it's worth emphasizing and get to it. Uh, Saul is watching him in, in verse nine mm-hmm. and in verse 10 the next day, a harmful spirit, this version says, from God rushed upon Saul. There's two or three, and I don't remember where they are, but there's two or three uh, statements like this in in Samuel where an evil spirit from God, God sends an evil spirit on Saul. And then down in verse 14, uh, David had success in all his undertakings takings for the Lord was with him you pointed that out but Mm -hmm. even though this evil spirit is sent by God upon Saul
0: he's still protecting David that's a great point yeah Uh, any other comments
2: in contrast to that, also in chapter 16, the significant verse where, um, uh, it's verse 13, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from mm-hmm. that day forward. So there, th- this is where you have this significant <coughs> spiritual battle going on. This The Spirit of the Lord is on David and remains on him, but then God sends a harmful spirit upon Saul. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so... And I I don't remember where it is, but in Samuel as well, there's a mention that the spirit departs from Saul as well. Is that David gains a spirit and a spirit leaves Saul as well. Any other comments? Okay, we're going to start moving through this because I don't have as much time as I'd like. Um, So then you have the story in chapter 19 of um, Michael and David... Attempting to settle down, but Saul has decided, I'm going to kill David. He doesn't even get to enjoy married life for that long. Uh, his wife sends him through the window to flee and escape. But he has a best friend. We all know the comfort that can come from having a best friend. And Jonathan says, I'm going to find out if Saul's really mad at you. If he is, they devise this thing where he's going to shoot arrows and have the boy send for them. If he says go farther, that means you got to get out of here. If he says come closer, that means you're safe. It was not a good verdict. David had to stay away. And so you have this heartbreaking, heart-wrenching departure, this farewell. That David has to say goodbye, not only to his wife, not only to his home, but to his best friend. What makes matters worse is that his best friend was Don- O.R. Jonathan, the son of Saul. <clears throat> so... All of this is coloring in and setting the context for the actions that David does. The attitude, the heart of David at this point, is he's destitute and he's broken. And he's so sad. And then you have this story where he's in front of Achish. And they say, this is David. This is the guy who killed the Philistine. And... In fear for his life, he acts like a crazy person. He acts like a madman, it says. He drools, and it runs down his beard. He begins writing on the walls. And um, some people think that this might be something that he learned from watching Saul. Perhaps this is behavior that Saul himself engaged in. He says, I'm going to act like a crazy person. I'll act like Saul. And he gets himself out of this situation. Akish comes in and says, don't I have enough madmen? you got to bring me more. You have more on my plate to deal with. So he sends him out, and David wins his own life, but at the cost of denying God, at the cost of cowardice. And when he's in this cave reflecting, and I wanted to read Psalm 34, part of it, it starts out at the beginning. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Saul... Um, sorry, David. At this point, saying, "I will not deny God. I will have His name on my mouth at all times," and this this um, beautiful psalm that goes on is quoted by someone else in the New Testament, and that's quoted in the book of First Peter. And First Peter three, starting in verse ten, reads: "For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech." They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's an exact quotation from this psalm. And what Peter is saying is that I have found what David said to be true. Because I did the same thing that David did. And what was that failure of Peter? What was that spiritual battle that he lost in that moment. What was Peter told that he was going to do. That he denied doing. And later ended up of course falling too.
2: He denied Christ three times.
0: He denied Christ. That's, that's a pretty big deal right? Just as David denied God by playing the madman. Peter himself denied Christ to save his own life, and he felt terrible about it. He wept bitterly, and Peter later in his life says that I've learned from David. The words of David are just as true when he said them as they are for me now. And he, you think about David, like I said, these men come to him, and he has people, not that many, just 400, but people to listen to him. And he says, for whoever would love life and see good days. Who wants to do that? I think everybody would agree that's a good thing to do, right? That's something we would like to have. They must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Pretty easy, right? Pretty easy in command. Much more difficult in implementation. But really, that is, that is it. That is what it takes to be a soldier, a spiritual soldier, and win spiritual battles. And what later, um, Psalm 56, 11, another uh, Psalm of David, he says, In God I trust, and I am not afraid. What can man do to me? And then 1 Peter 3:13. Reiterates that He said, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Right? What a question, right? Who is going to harm me if I do good? How am I going to be afraid if I'm seeking to do good? Because there's different levels of answers, right? On the one level, you can point, right? David, in the presence of Achish, he can say, he's going to harm me. This guy can kill me. Or David in the presence of Saul, this guy, he wants to kill me. He very well could if I let him. And then Peter, of course, by the Romans, outside the courts, denying Christ. They're saying, hey, you're, you're with him, right? If he says, yeah, that's, that's Jesus, I'm one of his loyal followers, what can they do? Well, they can crucify him. History tells us they did crucify him. But as we Christians who believe in a resurrection... Christians who believe that this life is not the end, but that the end of this life is actually the beginning of a much more important, momentous, true life, then it is true. 1 Peter 3.13, Psalm 56.11, it is true on the deepest level imaginable that if we seek to do good, if we seek to do right by Christ, then there is no one that can harm us. Because being a member of Christ means that our spiritual welfare is taken care of. Death only makes us better. Um, so that's all I have uh, for this lesson. Uh, does anybody else have anything they wanted to uh, comment or add? Anything they're thinking about? Yeah.
1: Well, going on on Psalms 34, after David learned his mistake, and of course Peter learned the same thing, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous in verse 19, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And that's yeah. something we all have to learn.
0: Deliverance. Not necessarily the way we, that we might want to in this life, but the ultimate deliverance, uh, eternity with him. Uh, yeah, great point. Any other comments or questions?
1: One of the lessons you learn from studying First Samuel about uh, Saul and David is that God works with Saul as long as his heart is right and his spirit is on Saul, but when Saul turns away, God sends an evil spirit, and he gives the spirit to David, and I think that's a good lesson for us today, there's a choice there that Saul made, and he having well, the consequences of the bad choices.
0: Absolutely, very well said. Alright, thank you for your time and attention as always.